Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and we have returned to Zoom today to talk to North America. Um, Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat are Zooming in, as always, and I should make an announcement off the top. Peter Cat's Zoom backgrounds uh, seem to have come to an end. They've entertained us through the pandemic, but Peter, have you finally <laughs> grieved the European holiday that never happened? No, I just forgot to uh, hide my messy background today, but I'm still, I'm still virtually in Italy. Yeah, right. Well, not a bad place to be, and nice to be with you as well, Sue. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and our guest today, um, Dr. Catherine Keller, is Professor of Constructive Theology at the Theological School of Drew University in New Jersey. She is author of books such as Cloud of the Impossible, On the Mystery, Intercarnations, and most recently, Facing Apocalypse, Climate, Democracy, and Other Last Chances. Um, Zooming in from somewhere near New York, my uh, geography of of America isn't superb, but uh, Catherine Keller, thank you so much for joining the On The Way podcast. Well, I'm delighted to join you way down there. Yes. No, it's it's a treat. We've looked forward to to this for a while, and this particular book um, that we're about to explore that, that you've just published uh, a month or so ago as of time of recording, it, it, it is such a uh, timely book in terms of covering what's going on in the world and what our past 12 months have been. It's It feels um, there's not a, a heap of uh, well-explored commentary and, and investigation into what's occurred in the world theologically over the last 12 months. This feels like something a bit groundbreaking. Has it been received that way? Well, um, you... You put it with marvelous spunk. I mean, I, I hope that it's being received that way. I've been pleased at the way it's it's moving around and wider than academic circuits, uh, which it was written to do. Mm. Uh, and indeed, I'm glad that it's not altogether contained even within Christian circles, uh, though it doesn't get much beyond those boundaries since it's a it's an engagement of the the apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> the last book of the of the christian bible uh so it's 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 moving around and given that it's only been out for a few weeks uh, there there have been some uh some lively conversations quite a few of them about it and and i think it it does it does speak to the present moment how we define that moment is <laughs> is a little woozy and wavy, isn't it? I, mean, I finished the book sometime late last year, uh, began it uh, almost two years ago. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> it, it certainly includes at least that moment. And, uh, you know, how, how, however one understands the moment, it always, that, that, that moment always ripples into quite a deep past and quite an unknowable future, doesn't it? As well as rippling out geographically across the globe as we're doing now. So a now moment is also uh, in a space, in a place. And yeah, so this this book is trying to use this ancient text, which can seem to be really crude in its relevancies, or really misused in the way it's applied to the present and to the future uh, so very often. But uh, nonetheless, I do feel it to have a kind of strange reverb with the present tense, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, in some particular way, the present tense of, of, of our of our new millennium. And, and so I, I tried to open that up. And I, I do think that that 
people are feeling that it its relevance um, can keep on churning um, for a while. So I, I am hopeful that it's being a bit helpful, you know, in as, in as much as a book like this can be, in as much as a book can be. <laughs> it's like, uh, if I could really get like lead people out into marches from Washington, or, you know, organize the, the, the new party that, that sees us through to a new age, I would, I would do it, but this is what I can do. Oh, well, it's a fantastic book. It's a gripping book. Um, you know, and I remember reading the original blurb, uh, of the book and, and feeling my heart race a little bit quicker because probably like many people, whenever we talk about, um, anything that sounds like the apocalypse, like end times, it, yeah. it's, it's scary stuff. And, um, it's probably the sort of stuff that we try to put out of our minds most days to function in the world. Yeah. Um, but it is, this is, I think the, the thing that, that, you know, the book opens up, um, among many other things is that what the, the apocalypse isn't the end of the world. The apocalypse might be what we need to save us from the end of the world. And you explore that through, um, through looking at the book of revelation, sort of dream reading the book of revelation, going through it, how it wasn't a story predicting the end of the world, but instead sort of identifying and analyzing, um, concerning patterns that could lead that way if people didn't pay attention and how we're doing a similar thing today. It's a very um, unique project, I think, to read Revelation, to see how it compares today and the warning signs in it. Can you tell us where the idea um, originated for you to, to, to embark on this project? Well, I can, but I want to say first, Dom, that was a really brilliant summary of the book. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe just in our conversation now, really, you, you nailed it. Uh, but where I got the idea was um, through just, I think, I think maybe it was the insect apocalypse that did it to me. First, the insect Armageddon that came out of a great German uh, scientific study, and then came the insect apocalypse. That's at least how the Guardian named it. That was a, a major entological study of, of the two Americas showing that the dramatic uh, decline here of the insect population, which happens to be the bottom of our food chain. So this is really not okay. Uh, but it was it was that that uh, that use of the term apocalypse, that huge term for those little insects, that that made me realize I had to return to the theme of apocalypse. I mean, I, I had written uh, another book on the apocalypse that came out in '96. Oh, I've got a copy right here. Um, <laughs> it was called Apocalypse Now and Then: A Feminist Guide to the End of the World. Uh, and I had a more sardonic attitude towards the book of Revelation in that book, though I ended up begrudgingly having great respect for the text and, and realizing, uh, you know, through an immersion in the history of its interpretation that, that the book of Revelation uh, wasn't just a possession of, you know, like the American right and and the forms of, of fundamentalism or of proto-fundamentalism that go back through history with various literalistic interpretations of doom, uh, I realized that it, it was also the inspiration uh, for all of the revolutions of the Western world. It was actually a great Marxist theorist, Ernst Bloch, uh, 
who had to flee East Germany because he was just too into the Bible, uh, but who in a great three volume work was, was showing that Christian apocalypticism actually was crucial to the democratic and the social revolutions. So I had gotten that clear back in the last millennium that it was a very ambiguously uh, <laughs> wrought and fraught text uh, and had been used in, in absolutely opposing uh, ways and used very dramatically, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. But I had hoped I'd put it to rest in, in the last millennium and that I wouldn't have to return to it. But finally, what, uh, what came home to me, um, what made me realize I had to return to that text once again, uh, is that it became clear that we're just going to keep for the rest of our lives, and I don't just mean my life, <laughs> but you're a much younger one, we are going to keep on hearing about apocalypse. It's going to be used not just in histrionic ways, not just in uh, fundamentalist ways, but it's going to be used in these fairly responsible ways, like the insect apocalypse, the reporting on that in The Guardian was absolutely responsible. Uh, but the term is going to be used uh, over and over. Uh, there are just already endless instances of it within a year uh, to, to warn that our collective processes as a species are taking us to the brink. But it's being used as warning, as signal that we've got to wake up and do something about it. And I realize this is very close actually to the spirit of the original book, but these are mostly casual uses of it and people don't actually know that these uses are, are in, in some way uh, quite well-tuned to the, the prophetic vision of, of John of Patmos. So it was realizing that the word is just gonna come up over and over and over again because of people's fear that we've gone too far, you know, particularly uh, with climate change. Uh, and so both fear that we're over the edge, uh, you know, too far into the tipping point or strong warnings that we are very close, uh, but that there's a chance of responding responsibly. Uh, and so I thought it is just very important that, that as wide a public as possible uh, become a little familiar with that symbol of the apocalypse. And of course, particularly a, a biblically grounded kind of public, um, and that will be widely a church-based public, uh, <laughs> a church like yours that, that's about uh, ecological and social justice, but that these publics need to be able to use the term apocalypse with real precision because it's of tremendous cultural uh, value and power now. Mm. And so the misuse of it is dangerous, really dangerous. And not just the fundamentalist misuse, which is just going to go on and on and on. And in my country has tremendous force, as you know, uh, you know, got Trump elected, etc. But, but also the, the uses by liberals and progressives who are, who are scared and were warning about uh, the, the, the dereliction of, of power in the, way, in the way our civilization 
is is trending. So I just think that that Christians especially have to have to help with responsible attunement to that very influential ancient text, so that it's not used as an excuse to just give up. Yeah. You know what's the point? And <laughs> we're doomed. Yeah. Uh, whether that means how yeah, the Lord is coming soon, so we have nothing to fear. <laughs> which one of my students' mothers <laughs> told told him, you know, when she became convinced that, yeah, maybe there's something to climate change, but never mind, it's a sign that the Lord is coming, and, and yeah. so we'll, we'll be raptured up and everything's fine. So there's that. But on the other hand, there's just the way that so many of the people that I think uh, you and I communicate with are often on the verge of, of despair mm. and of hopelessness. Mm because uh, the, the, the momentum of destruction in key planetary processes, especially related to economics and energy and extraction, are moving in such a dangerous, in such a dangerous way. So I'm just hoping that, that meditation on the, on the ancient text in this way is, is a way of helping us stay on the way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's lovely. Yeah. I, I so you jump in, Peter. I just thought that was one of the most important things of your about your book, uh, Catherine, is that it actually reclaims a really important word in the Christian nomenclature. And I think you know the way the word apocalypse has been used is that idea of the second coming and you know, the, and, and an, an external disaster coming upon the world precipitated by God of all of all things mm -hmm. has been an amazing distraction um, it's a bit like when we we turn powers and principalities into such spiritualized external realities that we actually miss what's really controlling us and guide and and deforming mm -hmm. us and I thought you know, the, the way mm -hmm. you handled things like the beast and and label it as culture rather than as some sort of monster that's uh, phantasmal um, was really, really, really significant, and and um, I've been on a bit of a project for years to try and reclaim all those wonderful words. You know, like we have a we have a sect within our church that calls themselves the Evangelicals, and and think that they have evangelism wrapped up. And then there's the Charismatics who think they're the only people who have charism, and you know, sort of. And, and Catholic, you know, all these terms that actually should describe um, charisms of the entire church yeah, get yes. get get uh, hijacked. And apocalypse, the apocalypse is one of those things that got hijacked and spiritualized. And and then it becomes um, it stops us being real and stops us engaging with reality. And so I thought the way you regrounded um, that whole tradition. And um, basically, are saying to us, this is this this book contains warnings that are for all time. Hey, what do you call them? Um, timeful, not not timeless, but timeful warnings. Um, I think that was really brilliant, and um, I really hope that the dialogue that or the conversation you've started does get outside of the Christian box, because I think. Um, we're one of the few traditions that actually has the capacity to name things that are controlling us 
like culture and stuff like that, where uh, for a lot of other people, it's just seen as the the water we swim in, and it's un- yeah. you can't alter it. Um, but your book gives us the gift of hope, if not, you know, I, I agree with Rowan Williams, who says that he's uh, hopeful but not optimistic. Uh, so, so we, um, I think you give us the gift of hope, even if uh, optimism is still a long way off, but the hope drives us. So I, I really found um, your helping us to reclaim this word um, really, really, really exciting. Well, thank you, Peter. Boy, there are a lot of rich insights in what you're saying. It, as as to hope, it was actually Karl Barth, you know, that that very Protestant theologian uh, who haunts most of the traditions I've been trained in, and who I have very very little in in common with. Uh, but it was Barth who, who said. As Christians, we are not optimistic or pessimistic. We are hopeful. <laughs> that that's the one the one sentence from Karl Barth that uh, that I constantly <laughs> recycle. Well, you um, and so so for for those who mightn't be aware of another understanding of the word apocalypse, Catherine, because certainly up until very recently with your work, I've got to say my understanding was probably the the dominant understanding of apocalypse meaning um, the the last moments, it all ending. I remember there was a particular church on the corner um, up the road from where I grew up, and every time you drive past it, they they had the apocalyptic warnings up there. Apocalypse is coming, repent now. You'd see that on your drive to school and think that's a bit heavy for a Tuesday morning, but okay, guys. Um, but that, that was the understanding of apocalypse that certainly... I was given that seems to seep through the culture. Can you tell us a little bit about the word apocalypse and and where it comes from, what it actually means? Yeah, yeah, it's really important to go there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I can see what it's like to drive by those signs, but maybe if you do it year after year and you see they keep updating their <laughs> predictions for coming next month, yes. <laughs> somehow their somehow their congregations are willing just to forget that they miscalculated over and over and over again. <laughs> coming up precise but yeah, so to but it but yeah, so it's why so many liberal Christians just don't do anything about the apocalypse. And by the way, that was one of the reasons I felt I had to do my book in 96. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to loop back to the, 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 the present point about the, the word apocalypse, but just to say it was realizing that that no one, no one whom I would normally read in theology was writing about it, certainly not in the United States. It was just like left to evangelicals and fundamentalists and a few biblical scholars. Uh, but uh, liberal and progressive theologians at that point just just like it abandoned it uh, to the right wing and that's partly why I felt that as a theologian I was getting called to this really difficult task since I'm not a biblical theologian and I've never been attracted to that book but I realized even then uh, that it just had to be more responsibly interpreted and now I feel that all the more intensely Uh, so yes back to the word itself uh, apocalypsis uh, in 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 the biblical Greek uh, is is from the verb apocalyptein, which means literally to unveil, uh, and in that sense to reveal. The original uses of the term uh, in 
in ancient Greek literature seem to be about the unveiling of the bride on her wedding night where her veil comes off with her new husband. So <laughs> it's a more erotic origin to the term than, than most people realize. But it then came to mean unveiling uh, more generally. But it's interesting, isn't it? It means to disclose, not to close down. <laughs> mm. It's an opening up. It's revealing uh, something that has also great beauty. The Virgin New Jerusalem, in the end, might be a sexist text, but still these are powerful images. So that unveiling is of something that is uh, hopeful and beautiful. It's also an unveiling of great destruction uh, that will have happened before uh, what's called the New Jerusalem comes about. So it, it is a revelation of, of those, as, as Dom summarized it beautifully, those destructive patterns in our civilization that were leading, had already in John's time led to unbearable levels of destruction, of mass, uh, mass killings, mass destructions uh, at the hands of the Roman Empire. That's that's really what the beast meant for him. Mm. And the Roman imperial economy was what he meant by the whore of Babylon. That's his secret code. I mean, that's agreed on by, by most biblical scholars. <clears throat> so he was looking at the destruction that that empire was wreaking and would continue to wreak. And that was what was catching uh, uh, Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus. He didn't know what a Christian was <laughs> when he was writing. They didn't exist as such yet. But followers of Jesus also, you know, sometimes caught up, sometimes seduced by the beast, the whore. So that's the ancient imperial context, but the symbols are, are very, uh, very dreamlike, archetypal in that sense, and, and therefore uh, seem to have ongoing relevance for structures of imperial world power and the kind of global economy uh, of greed that goes with it. And so there is unveiling a, a pattern of great destruction and of the possibility of great transformation. What is not unveiled is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen in the book of Revelation. It happens nowhere in the Bible. That's a later construct, that notion of the end of the world. It's much more crude than anything in the Bible where there are you could say many worlds in the plural collapse, and as they do, <laughs> species collapse, whole peoples collapse, endless genocides through history have seen to that. Uh, but the world, no, uh, it does not end in the book of Revelation. It undergoes uh, great trauma uh, over a period of time, uh, but seems to also undergo great transformation. The the, um, another word that I think it would be helpful to, to clear up as well in this space is prophecy, because I know that prophecy was uh, a word I certainly um, grew up believing was fortune telling, um, predicting the future. If someone was <laughs> prophesying, they were basically um, telling you what was going to happen in 50 years or 100 years or maybe next week, depending on what projection they were making. 
Um, and I think this is how why many people read Revelation as someone <laughs> predicting the future. This is, and I think that you know that is in there. This is how things will happen. This is what will happen, and and so that's how people read it. It's almost like you're getting a sneak peek into the last chapter of of existence itself, um, and what's mm-hmm. going to go down when we get there. What's a much more helpful way of understanding prophecy? Yeah, well, great question. Uh, because of course, prophecy can all too readily be read as prediction and has been read that way, especially through the modern centuries where there is much more of a, of a literal sense of history. And so literalism of, of prediction uh, with fundamentalists who are very modern, <laughs> uh, very fact-oriented. Uh, and the way to understand biblical prophecy is not as prediction. I, I call it dream reading in this text, just to try to get a fresh approach to it. There is there is great disclosure of possible uh, futures in a very broad, very dreamy, nightmarish or more alluring sense. But this is not what we mean by prediction. Uh, this is the reading of patterns that are already in place. Uh, that's what the prophets read in the whole history that goes back more than more than half a millennium uh, before John that he's part of that deep uh, Hebrew prophetic tradition uh, that would always be reading patterns and it was imperial patterns that they were reading sometimes imperial patterns of of their own nation of israel itself that they saw as self-destructive but often then looking as with isaiah and Jeremy, looking at the the patterns of of the imperial uh colonizers you know samaria babylon uh so you have those those histories of prophetic readings of oppressive power, uh, and then it's the Roman Empire for John, uh, and that's what the prophets are reading. They're reading how these patterns of oppressive power, imperial power, have got uh, (laughs) the people of God in their grip, uh, both in ways that uh, uh, can be very seductive, but also in ways that uh, are, are very punitive if the powers are resisted. And so you have uh, you have great danger in the call to testify, to witness uh, that is going out from the prophets and the expectation that there will be martyrdoms as there have been uh, uh, in, in, in droves uh, because of, of that witness. But the point, one can read patterns that are going on and that will predictably continue for some time because of their force. Uh, But that, and maybe uh, for many centuries, uh, as I think John did anticipate, um, but he's not not clear about that. uh, that Any any naming of of times, of of epoch lengths in in his books is very, very symbolic. Uh, but there's there is a sense that this imperial pattern would go on for some for some time before it, it turns against itself, the beast turning against uh, the whore who's riding on his back and <laughs> devouring her. You know, it's the great internal conflagration of, of imperial power with itself. So it's a reading of a pattern. That, that is already here, that we're in the grip of, that's going to have destructive consequences and that will be all the more destructive 
if we keep yielding to it, if we don't find ways to to resist it on behalf of <laughs> of the life in the world and the love that is possible and the justice that is needed. I did. There, there's one line of yours that I um, wrote down where you you say. If in some surreal sense their author does prophesy, it is not because he was seeing the future. Only what already exists can be seen, and the future is what does not yet exist. But deep patterns do exist in the present, and they lo may long persist. A prophet reads a potent pattern of human civilization, a pattern that may still, in some strange and tragic ways, replicate itself today. Which, uh, to, to me, that, that idea of... It's almost like when you read it as predicting the future and you read Revelation as what's going to happen at the end, it just moves yourself back into that um, that uh, that thing you all your work has been sort of deconstructing, Catherine, that top-down God who set things in place long ago and is running the show and we're just sort of, you know, helplessly running around hoping that we'll be in that God's yeah. favour. That, that, that sort of vision, when you, I guess when you imagine that there is a future clearly set in stone and someone got given a bit of a sneak peek at the end and is letting the rest of us know, it moves back to a very unhelpful top-down God, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? And it, and it leads to, to grotesque forms of irresponsibility, personal and <laughs> collective. This relates to what, to what Peter uh, was also saying about this misreading of, of God as somehow the one who, who is sicking the beast on us, the, the one who's somehow behind the, all of this uh, apocalyptic destruction, this, this profound deformation of, of, of faith that has, that has built itself up over, over the stretch of Christian history uh, so that we have a notion of God as in control of what's happening in the world. And of course, it's completely incoherent. How can, how can we be held responsible for anything? How do we even begin to make ethical choices that we can be held responsible for if God is in control of it all? Yeah. Then God is manipulating our choices. And then some some will say, well, God makes the big choices. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when, you, when you're born and when you die, and, you know, <laughs> the big twists in history, but we're responsible for our own choices anyway. It, it, so it's just like what? So God's enough in control to set us up <laughs> so that we we really screw up and then God gets to punish us. I yeah. mean, it is it isn't actually a coherent vision is the problem of theodicy of the notion of some all controlling master puppeteer in charge of the universe who's somehow still holding us responsible for our actions though he big h could could step in any time yeah. to prevent anyone and all of the holocausts of history you know yeah. and we and we don't let ourselves realize excuse me how monstrous a god that is you know we uh, somehow could have maintained that narrative for how long that that has been swirling around and no one in who are who is using that kind of rhetoric seems to have the capacity to step back and go that's a monster 
that kind of setup is a monstrous thing. Um, yeah. And if if God was like that, you know, God would not be a God of love. And I think it also underpins what's at stake here, Catherine, in reclaiming the word apocalypse, because in allowing that word, and I've been guilty of it myself, just go, look, that's that's been the territory of um people making mad predictions with a certain kind of God, we don't want anything to do with it. And you step away from it, you don't, don't preach it, you leave it alone. And what's at stake is that we risk that image of the God being perpetuated over and again, because we're not reclaiming the central place of what apocalypse is about. Yeah. Mm. yeah. We also rob people of agency. That's the, that's the thing I find most troubling about the idea of prophecy of future casting is that it, it gives the impression that we can't do anything about it, so we may as well just go along for the ride and, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, the only thing we can do is sort of uh, indulge ourselves and it creates creates Hitler's bunker, really, uh, where you know, they apparently in the last couple of weeks in Hitler's bunker they had the best party of, of all time because they okay. knew that they were toast and so they just basically literally through all caution to the wind and you know that 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 is another thing that our culture is doing there's a whole lot of people who you know i've seen it in my own congregation people who were climate deniers now are climate acceptors but they figure that the whole thing is out of their control there's nothing they can do about it um so you know just enjoy life best you can even though you know it's it's all coming to a, gr a grinding horrible end mm -hmm. Um, whereas your reading um, helps us reclaim the idea that a prophet is just unveiling what is and that we can do something about it. You know? And I think you know, way back in the Old Testament writings, you know, the, the writer of the novel Jonah tries to deal with this. You know, Jonah strides into Nineveh and says, in 40 days this place is going to be destroyed and the people of Nineveh do something about it and they, they're not destroyed. Now, technically, Nineveh, um, Jonah should have been labelled as a false prophet because you know, what he said didn't come to pass. And so you know, I, think, I think way back then, even the, you know, the, the Hebrew people were trying to wrestle with the idea of prophecy. And Jonah says, God says stuff because there are patterns that are being recognised, but people have agency, and if people actually say, oh, that's interesting, um, we could do something about that and they change, then the prophecy doesn't, the prophecy doesn't become true. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we reclaim the idea of the prophet as someone who can just see clearly and gives and then says to us, you can do something about that. Yeah. You know, you climate change is a classic case. We, yes. can, we can overcome climate change in no time if we take the prophecies seriously. Yeah. I'm just reading a novel, speaking of novels, by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, Ministry, uh, Ministry of the Future, 800-page novel. Uh, but it, it, it takes up about 10 years from now, and he's, he's a novelist who's been very preoccupied with climate change. And I won't give anything away, but it, it's so interesting how it takes one <laughs> deep into the near future of how our patterns are moving now. But I have to say, he also is showing how this actually can change. Uh, 
the it's too late is simply no excuse. Mm -hmm. It's too late for some species. It's too late for some things. Uh, it's not at all too late if we mobilize uh, in very in, in, in very strong political uh, and economic ways on behalf of the yes. ecology and all of us species within it. There is so much that that can be done. But yes, it so. <laughs> It's so tragic that so much of, of Christianity is undermining our agency to make that change rather than feeding it with faith, rather than inspiring it with the, with the spirit. We're feeding what Sue, you were referring to as the, the monster, <laughs> because that's what we get. We get a kind of monster God when, when, when we have this, 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 this ghostly, a superpower up there who's basically manipulating everything that is, uh, but ultimately can send a bunch of us to hell for it anyway. So a lot of thinking people just just opt out uh, altogether of the Christian scheme, but so many Christians are, 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 are caught in a strange paralysis and <laughs> That's not only depressing, uh, but it's it's just undermining the the chances that we actually have right now. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about that bunker story of Hitler and his folk uh, having mm -hmm. having a great time in those last days. Just, it's a it's a fun, yeah. Eat, right? drink, and be That's merry. Or mm -hmm. yeah, but with Christians, there's some of that. But then you know, and be pious too. Just. You know. <laughs> Well, there wasn't much piety going on in Hitler's, Hitler's yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's more straightforward yeah. monstrosity. Yeah. Ours, is, ours is a little more crooked, mm. but we do have the resources. And, and really, it's not it's not a pathetic situation with Christianity. It's tragic that that it's not a bigger proportion of of, of Christian churches on board. And yet it's it's. It's not very far under like 40 to 45 percent of Christians in the world who get that climate change is a problem and we're responsible for it and it connects to social justice and there's a prophetic tradition and a yeah. Jesus who call us to responsibility. I mean, yeah. that form of Christianity that your cathedral is an instantiation and a performance of is, is also alive and kicking it's it's not altogether healthy and well and, and growing and strong throughout the world of course that's that's tragic uh but there's still an awful lot of us <laughs> compared yeah. to almost any other public that you can name if you add us all up together yeah we're a significant public and so mobilizing us matters mm. It's interesting. I, I saw on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, Catherine, it came up in my feed um, from a friend I've known from many, many years ago. And that it was an image and the title was A Prayer for Climate Change. And I thought, oh, I thought this friend was a climate denier. So they made, they've come some journey clearly. But oh. I think with the second or third line of the prayer said, God, please save us from climate change. Yeah. We can't well, do this. We need yeah. you to save us from climate change. And again, it just felt a little bit like... <laughs> You know, God didn't get us into this and God's not getting us out of it. So, so there, this idea of us being co-creators, that, that there isn't a, a, a God running the show who determines how we got here and how it's going to end, but that the future is unknown. It's up for grabs. And 
any any serious notion of God is one who's creating this future alongside us with all the possibilities on the table. Yeah, beautiful. So but we do have we do have a really long tradition, don't we, in Christianity and in, in liberal Christianity as well, of telling God to do things, of asking God, begging God to take yeah. care of our problems. And it's very sincere. <laughs> And it, it, it does have some biblical basis, so careful interpretation is needed because, of course, there's biblical basis for calling on God. We, of course, we need God's help to make any good difference in the world, but what does that help mean? If we can just teach our people it doesn't mean God's going to fix it for us, it might mean that God is going to empower us to make the difference that God can empower us if we will let God do it. <laughs> that God is, is inspiring. God is making possible. That God is not making actual. That's up to the creatures of the world, not just humans, to actualize these possibilities that are the divine gifts every moment mm. to everything. But this gets theologically intense, doesn't it? To, to find a way to reinterpret the, the meaning of, of God's agency in the world. Yeah. Because we're always stumbling around in a lot of contradictions where even good, responsible liberals have the, who are Christians have the notion that, that if God wanted to, God could just step in and, and fix climate change. And certainly God could, could heal my cancer. Uh, and... And that's why that's why theological education for our people is so important to help get to a, a more nuanced understanding of how of how God's will works. Yes, we pray rightly for healing, but again, uh, so that so that the divine spirit in the world, in our flesh, in the flesh of all the creatures of the world can be unleashed to inspire our agency, yeah. our responsibility. That's what we're here for, to, to create with God. You know, the notion that we're just puppets has gotten entrenched in us. And, you know, yeah. um, God is the big daddy who can step in. And, yeah. and, and that's been given a holiness too, hasn't it? That, that sense of, of, of passivity has been seen as a more blessed state. We've actually seemed to have encourage people to think that that is um that has the the god gloss on it when we are um surrender and surrender here's where i think we need to get the idea of surrender right surrender can be a beautiful word but yes. not if it's if it's toned into the idea of um and again sacrifice is another one of those dangerous words that we can yes. badly <laughs> badly wrong that can lead us not to active engagement co-creation but in passivity and saying oh we're just waiting for god to rescue us um and to intervene so and yet we people are instructed i know at a parish level you know you people feel they sometimes go against their own natures to feel that oh what i should be doing you know is is just trying to let god have control you know and they've they've been instructed to feel that that is the righteous path and haven't realized that you know that sense of agency and empowerment is the way the spirit works yeah so important i'm so glad you're doing this work this teaching 
because yes, the language of, of surrender, the language of sacrifice, as you say, and, you know, even of letting go um, is an important part of the tradition. So to help people understand that doesn't mean giving up agency. It might mean giving up our ego. It might mean letting go of the illusion that we're in control. In that way, you know, uh, dying to self in Christianity is not that different uh, from uh, from self-emptying in Buddhism. Yeah, you know, of getting free of this this illusion of an ego that's separate from everything in its world, and that that you know can look at it all objectively and is pretty much in control and yeah. has a right to be yeah. uh, so that delusion of power and the ego and its separation that might be what is always again needing needing to especially with <laughs> power guys power white guys but you know with all of us to some extent that we need surrender from we need we yeah. need to, to sacrifice that so that we can be in sync with the spirit yes. Yes. so that we can really, really exercise our responsibility. Yeah, it's all about dying. There's much less sexy word in, in many ways. People could talk about uh, giving control to God and stuff, but they're less less keen on talking about dying. And yeah. yet it's at the heart of the Christian tradition that, that death to self is is over and over again and uh in in many ways it's no you haven't gone far enough um mm -hmm. it's only in in that death that i think is that um that and in that that kind of surrender that we recover our agency anyway mm -hmm. that's not to do with our own personal will and control over but is actually a much more collective mutual you know here we are sharing that co-creation work Right, in a power of, of love that can have tremendous force yeah. in the world. <laughs> yes, that dying to self, that, yeah, to, to help people get that dying to self isn't, isn't, about, isn't about losing what's unique, what's distinctive, what's very cool about you, <laughs> uh, you know, what's, what's in your genes, what's utterly distinctively your gift that you're, you're, you're called to realize that's dying to self is, is freeing up that, that deeper, yes. more, yeah. more real self, mm. that creaturely self that also can co-create then with your community and all together with your God. Hmm. It overcomes um, the idea of separation too, that we're somehow separate from one another and separate from nature. I think that's the most damaging of, well, they're all, they're all damaging. All these binaries are incredibly damaging and destructive. Um, but yeah, the current one where we see nature as something that's other um, and, you know, I, I suspect there's a sort of, bit of human hubris going on in in certainly some of our leaders you know our, our government's got the idea that technology will fix everything and that we'll cope with climate change because we'll come up with technology and I have this right. have this dystopian vision of what that means of us sort of sitting in highly air-conditioned spaces with um, all our food being grown in temperature regulated buildings um, 
while we work and work and work so that we can keep the economy going and um and, and make chemicals colored the sky dark yeah, so that yeah, you can block yeah. out the heat <laughs> yeah that's right all of that sort of stuff and even big screens uh, on our walls that create some sort of virtual reality of some imagined past of what mm. rainforest looked like with sort of one of those rainforest meditation te- uh, tracks <laughs> going in the background. Um, you know, the, the, we, this idea that we that, that somehow we can have a life without without nature, and yeah. it's and it it is dystopian. And I think you know oh. it, it it's like the modern rewriting of of the Book of Revelation. Really, it's just it is full of yuck and destructive things and people being dislocated from their true selves and um, oh it's very creepy yeah it's a it's a strong it's a strong illusion <laughs> we have we have our bezos going up in a couple of days and his his rocket <laughs> move on with the project of our freedom from nature <laughs> yeah that's right and it's that the, the whole hierarchy too is of course embedded in that kind of thinking that separation yeah. from nature also means dominance over nature yeah, yeah, yeah. Also means the supremacy of the human over the animal you know and the hierarchy that's going on instead of the mutuality yeah. of our, how we all all are in this web and, and are affecting one another and uh unless we lose our hierarchies and our dominance we're not going to find a way through yeah it's so important perhaps sometimes people are are afraid that they're just going to lose their uniqueness, you know, and so some of this, you know, we're separate from nature thing, you know, we're really special, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> expresses a deep insecurity, but yeah. it's, it's possible to help people understand that getting over separation <laughs> is not getting over difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that we are we are in the biblical vision we're clearly creatures among other creatures we are natures amidst nature but but yes genesis one i've been preoccupied with that text written a book and a half about it but yeah that yes of course we're we have some special calling and that dangerous word dominion is used for it which can only in context mean uh, responsibility. Uh, so we are called to some kind of godlike responsibility. That doesn't make us any less creatures. Yeah. It makes us creatures who need to be really conscious yeah. of our responsibility as as creatures who are who are co-creative. And it it so the point of our being in this interdependent, delicate web of life isn't that we lose our uniqueness, our specialness, our difference. I think it helps people to, to be reminded that no, we're, we are as humans, of course, extraordinarily gifted as a species. That doesn't make us exceptions yeah. from the web of life though. Yeah. It makes us especially able uh, to destroy it. <laughs> and so to destroy ourselves, hopefully yeah. it makes us especially able to, to heal. Yeah. Or, or I think it's also very, um, you know, hum- humbling for us to realise that in a biological sense we are technically parasites. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing. Well, we there's, are. You know, if, if we if we were to withdraw or disappear off the pl- face of the planet, um, the only things that would struggle would be the domesticated animals, because we've created 
they have become dependent on us. But we're, we're not we're not integrated into any biological system in the way that you know we're not we're not as significant as the pollinators or those wonderful little flies that can get into the fig tree into the fig and you know they're just the right size to get in to fertilize the, the you know we have you know if, if that little if that little fly was to disappear then the fig population would collapse you know those that, that little fly is <laughs> really really important whereas human beings if we were to disappear um, you know in fact the rest of the planet would flourish it would be it would be uh, better off that's yeah, right so, yeah, that's that's a hit to our pride. <laughs> that means that means that if we you know, we have if we're going to embrace the vision of humans having a special role, we have to see ourselves as as exercising that role because nothing else depends on us. Mm -hmm. and I, you know that hope that you you referred to Genesis one, and I think you know, here we have the story of how things came to be about you know the creation and at the. In, in, in day six, we get created uh, in the image and likeness of God. And I think, you know, if the only thing that that can mean for me is that we are co-creators. Yes. Because it's actually the story about creation. It's, you know, there's so what else is it yeah. to be in the image of God, but yeah, to right. be also co-creators? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, that puts an awesome responsibility on us because we are parasites. If the world is going to be a created thing rather than a destroyed thing, we have to exercise agency in the most subtle and sensitive and uh, flourishing of ways. Otherwise, we're the anti-creator. Now we become, you know, in the apocalyptic terms, we become the antichrist. We become, we become the, you know, the Christ is the creative principle. If we become the destructive principle, then we are literally, as a species, the antichrist. So it puts incredible um, uh, call on us, and it, and it makes it also says there's an incredible dignity about being human. But you know, the call is please embrace your calling. <laughs> well, I can just say amen, Reverend <laughs> Wow. That's, I, I don't know, Peter, how if you got up on a Sunday morning and preached humans are the Antichrist, how it would initially <laughs> be received. I just, did, I just did, brother. I just did. <laughs> yeah, it's been recorded. <laughs> but but, it, but it's... We have a choice if we can hear the, the call <laughs> to hear our calling. That's right. It, it, this, when you look at, at what's happening in the world this way, when you read Revelation or, or you know, generally the any of the sacred texts with this idea of human responsibility as agents, as co-creators in the whole thing, it does make, um, certainly it makes the situation we're in right now, it, for, for many, I think, probably a bit more scary, a bit more real, because there is this sense that mum and dad aren't coming home later tonight to fix up the mess we've made and to say, Hey, we'll try again tomorrow. But this yeah. is, this is on yeah. us where this is the game and we are the, the co-creators of this. So that, do, yeah. do you think maybe there's that why some people push this away and can't embrace this way of thinking because it's, it is quite scary and it is an enormous responsibility. And the, 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 we of that us is so fractured and it's really such a small percentage of that human us. It's actually responsible for the yes, yeah. destructive processes of the planet, though the rest of us are kind of forced to collude to varying degrees. So it's 
it's not only scary to realize that we are responsible as the human species, but that we somehow have to get it together, even though most of us are not the drivers of this mass destruction, uh, but that, <laughs> that we might be the ones who have to, who have to be taking the responsibility in, in some way that can, can, can ripple out and can hold those few who don't want to and who have so very much power uh, also responsible. Um, and we have to keep showing that, that that's possible. There are there are good signs along with all the dire ones. You know, like I'm I'm actually kind of kind of bemusedly delighted at at Ford's new <laughs> pickup truck. Have you heard of that? And that's an odd place to end, but uh, they have there's a the pickup truck that is by far the most popular car ever sold, period, is there. F-150, and they've just come out with a brilliant electrical version of it wow. that works superbly. There, there's little footage of our president, uh, Biden, <laughs> going for a very happy ride in that new truck. So, you know, I don't normally look for hope to, to oil companies and car companies. But that's an interesting twist. So uh, these, the, there are some turns that happen where one least expects it. There's, there's really no excuse to just, uh, to just give up uh, and give over to the, the powers that be. Even some of those powers can, can be pulled into greater, greater and greener responsibility. <laughs> I do think there's a, there was some fear, though, of, of losing the big other to look after us. It's not just about losing our own specialness. It's also losing the big other who's, who is looking after us. And we talk about being made in the image of God. You know, there's that expression of we're made in the image of God and then we've been returning the favour ever since. Um, <laughs> and that, that there's this horrible, terrible irony that in creating God in our own image, in this dominant white male, but in, in this <laughs> dominant God that's made in our own image, that we've not only then created that, but then we've devolved responsibility onto him. Mm. You know, that, that you know, it's, it's this cyclical thing that you can't get out of. You create, yeah. you project on it, and you create this dominant God and then go, oh, it's not our God, it's all over to him now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then and what we're saying in, in talking about being co-creators is to dismantle that whole system and say there is no big other there um, who's going to come down and intervene, that, that dominant in control figure, um, you know, is, is not there. You've got the wrong image and we need to, we, we actually, it's us and yes, we have God with us, but um, we have radical agency here, um, but there's a fear attached to all of that as a proposition, I think. Yeah, that's a beautiful analysis. Yeah. Oh, what a vicious circle, right? We project responsibility so we don't have it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and yet it was our responsibility that allowed us <laughs> to make that projection. Right, so hopefully there's just enough catastrophe going on that we can wake up and, and take responsibility <laughs> and not so much catastrophe that it's too late. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it is uh, because there are there are voices like yours uh, reaching reaching broad publics and calling us into a kind of responsibility that that isn't just uh, 
gloomy and frightened and, and desperately pushing against the odds. It has those moments that, that's also got got uh, got joy, uh, got the pleasures of of loving community and the satisfactions of making little differences and appreciating them with each other, and seeing those build towards big differences. That uh, there's there's so much that's that's attractive in the alternative, the kind of the kind of community um, that it can build. I think community of, of us and all of the other the other critters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That there's there's attractive force, not just fear at work, isn't there? In, in this yeah. calling back responsibility, but I think I think I think Sue's right. Uh, there, there's also that, that loss. There's certain, there might be the need to to help people grieve the loss of of that, yeah. <laughs> you know, that that hyper he up yeah. there who who was going to step in and and save us naturally or and at least supernaturally and yeah. to understand that the god of this universe is is a more is a more subtle and more infinite <laughs> presence than that yeah. and there's a challenge to culture in that because our culture encourages us to be quite adolescent and uh mm. this this call to be co-creators is us asking us to be integrated adults in community, um, which is very different to being um, adolescent, self-indulgent, um, bread and circuses. Um, there's, a, you know, so there's a big, big, big challenge to culture. And again, you know, your work um, points us to recognise that culture is actually a thing that we can have, uh, we can exercise agency over and we can defy and we can develop a new culture. We don't have to take, we don't have to take the background as red. We don't have to accept the capitalist uh, paradigm that says that we have to make money out of everything and, or, and, and everybody. Um, we can actually uh, appreciate, uh, we can give value to things that's not monetary. We can celebrate we can celebrate uh, each other. We can celebrate a whole lot of things without, you know, a few years ago, some some economic person, I was going to say clown, but so decided decided that the Great Barrier Reef, which is one of our, the biggest living structure on the planet, um, was worth $86 billion. Yeah, and by putting a value on it, it means if you come up with an oil drilling project that's worth $100 billion, you can actually toast the whole thing because you've actually increased the value. I mean, it's just, that is just ludicrous. It is, it is beyond price because of what it is. It just is because of what it is and it's beyond price. It is not worth $86 billion. It is of infinite worth. But, you know, some, some, someone thought they could actually work out the value of it based on its con contribution to tourism and... You know, the amount of fish they can catch off it and stuff like that. That's just that is that is just bizarre. That is antichrist, mm. isn't it? It is antichrist. Yeah, it is. And I've seen the Great Barrier Reef about twenty years twenty years ago. Yes, yeah. that would be the antichrist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that see that <laughs> sold and bleached, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And I've got to say, Catherine, reading the book that oh, I didn't think I would read a book on 
revelation, apocalypse and climate change and leave feeling <coughs> hopeful. Um, but that's exactly, you know, what, what you do in the book is this idea yep. that the future isn't set. The idea that these patterns are being revealed to us and we can do something about them. Um, and, and the idea of a God who is co-creating this whole way forward alongside us it is, you know, not not suggesting that the task is any smaller or any less daunting, but it's tremendously empowering uh, and tremendously hopeful. So thank you so much for for the book because I, I, the par- the paralysis you mentioned of cynicism and fear and and pessimism and it's all too much. That all that does is you know is shut us down and move us away from actually doing anything whereas your book and this work actually suggests no that there is a possibility there is always god is always co-creating alongside us for a a future that's undetermined beautifully summarized on i i hope that this apocalypse this disclosure works that way of course it isn't conducive to to that adolescent partying (laughs) that Peter was talking about. It's not fun in that way. And my book isn't fun to read in that way, but there, there is, there is pleasure. And I, I, I'm glad you pulled that out too. And the book of Revelation does in a sense end in a great, a great party. It's a wedding celebration in the new Jerusalem, you know, wedding celebrations were the big parties of, of the ancient world. And it's, it's an ecologically restored new creation with marvelous fruit trees and the water of life flowing through the center of the city. Uh, it's very abstract and symbolic, but does suggest, does suggest that uh, even, even from that ancient point of view, there's a kind of, of partying that becomes possible because we accept responsibility because we <laughs> we polish off that that divine image that's in each of us and and especially in us <laughs> together well well the book is facing apocalypse climate democracy and other last chances you can uh, find it online um, now uh, <laughs> Catherine thank you so much for making time to chat with us it's been a, a real treat uh, thank you I really enjoyed it I hope we talk again sometime We'd love to. <laughs> yes, we'll be very much up for that, Catherine. Uh, and we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast soon.